By the time I was in grade five, six, seven, I was breaking entry, selling drugs, lying, stealing, cheating. And at that moment, I realized I am on the cusp of getting caught. How do you decide to let that go? I learned to be aware of stopping the patterns that are keeping me stuck. I learned how to think. I learned how to challenge my emotions. You could take away anything and everything that I have now, and I would have a framework to build it back. Hello, my fellow dream chasers. Welcome to the Seeds of Success podcast. I'm your host, William Rossi, and it is my job to bring you inspiring interviews with people from all around the world who are living their life to the fullest. Our mission is to give you the tools to help you figure out who you are and what you want so that you can go out into the world and make your dream life a reality. Our first guest today is John Asaraf. John is a renowned entrepreneur, mindset expert, a New York Times best-selling author. He's a thought leader in the field of neuroscience and behavioral psychology, specializing in helping individuals achieve their fullest potential through navigating their inner thoughts. In this episode, we explore John's story of almost going to prison. If I get caught, I'm going to jail. To ending up leading the growth of several multi-million dollar businesses, we explore the depths of our inner thoughts and how our beliefs deprive us of doing meaningful things. When we have disempowering, negative, destructive beliefs, they tear us down. Would you like to do something nice with your life? Are you interested or are you committed? Welcome to the Seas of Success podcast. Without further ado, our first guest, John Asraf. John, I mean, thank you so much for for having us and hosting us here at your at your home. It's great to speak. It's great to have you here for for a lot of reasons. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, you're a fellow Montrealer, so how could I say no? Yeah, I appreciate it. What did you know that before? I had no idea. That's okay. why. I, <laughs> that's why as soon as you told me you're from Montreal, I'm like, holy shit, we have something in common. Yeah. So that's a big reason why I got to know you in the first place. I mean, for people who don't know you, I'll list off a few things that you know very well, obviously. So John, you've started uh, multiple or started, led multiple multi-million dollar businesses. You're a New York Times bestselling author. You're a leader in the personal development neuroscience space. And of course, you've got a little bit of a background from Montreal and San Diego. And I'll, I'll say, first of all, it's great to have you on. Um, I think there's a lot that you can bring to my audience, but what's, there's a little bit of self-interest, I would say, in, sure. in, in the terms of this interview. So we both have that connection. You grew up in Montreal or for part of, part of your, right. your youth, you grew up in Montreal. I grew up in Montreal. You live in San Diego now, and I idealize, uh, San Diego as a city that I think I want to live in and grow my business in and whatnot. So Wonderful. in a lot of ways, I see the life you've built, the things that you do, who you are. And I look at that and I'm like, that is a life I would like to live. And a life that I've actually been thinking about living prior to even knowing about you. So there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that I want to tap into. And I know my audience will love it too. Awesome. So, you know, it's easy to look at who you are right now. I mean, you're living a dream life, very happy, very successful. It doesn't always start that way. Right. So I'd love to know a little bit about your story. If you can share a bit of the, the beginning before the success started to pile up. What was that like? Uh, who were you as a kid and where did this start? Sure. So how far do you want me to go back? I mean, maybe not to the hospital when you... Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think if we, if we go back to maybe the beginning of Montreal, that's really... Um, I was born in Tel Aviv, Israel, and my parents were tired of the war in Israel, and they wanted to just raise my brother, my sister, and I in a place that didn't have wars. And because my father and mother both spoke French, 
they decided Montreal was a, a good place. And Montreal back in the mid 60s was allowing people to come, yeah. you know, immigrants from all over the world as Montreal was growing. And so, you know, I, I, I went to Montreal right after kindergarten and um, I quickly realized uh, I didn't speak the language and I went into grade one. And back then, there were about 55, 65 kids in every class. I mean, every kid was in a little chair with a little desk if you had one. And um, I quickly got behind. I didn't, uh, I didn't know the alphabet. I didn't know words. I didn't know how to speak to anybody. And the teachers didn't have a lot of time to teach me. And my mother and father were learning English. Um, French was something they could help me with, but I only had one class in French at school. And my brother and sister were learning how to speak English as well. So they were way more advanced than I was. And so very, very quickly, I felt like I didn't fit in. And I got into trouble really early on. Um, I sat in more corners in class than any kid in the history of time. Uh, and then as the years went on, grade two, three, four, five, I ended up getting into a lot of fights, into a lot of trouble. Didn't do well in school, fell behind in the classes. And uh, I, I felt like something was wrong with me. I felt like I didn't fit in. And I was, um, the teachers back then told my parents they want to put me on Ritalin, which was for hyperactive kids. And I always had a lot of energy, but when that energy wasn't being used to do something constructive, I did destructive stuff. <laughs> and that got me into a lot of trouble. By the time I was in grade uh, five, six, seven, I was selling drugs. I was involved what? in a small, small yeah. gang that was watching out for breaking and entries and to see if there were police around. And as I got older to grade, you know, nine, 10, 11, I was more advanced yeah. in yeah. what I was doing, breaking and entries, selling drugs, lying, stealing, cheating, and um, failing school, failed English, failed math. Uh, and I really didn't think I was good enough. The only thing that I was good at was sports. That was the only thing I was good at. Um, I started to fall in love with biology and chemistry okay. in grade 10, 11. I just found it fascinating how things worked. Yeah. Um, and so I loved that side of it. Math, I was terrible at. Mm -hmm. uh, English, my teacher told me I shouldn't write the way I speak, and that's why she failed me. Um, and so I just felt insecure. I felt like I don't fit in. And I left high school after grade 11 in, mm. in Montreal, and I went to go work in a shipping department for a company that my father was delivering and taking boxes back and forth in this company's shipping department because he was a cab driver. Okay. And so he got me a job and I hated it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely hated it. You know, counting what's in the boxes, putting on the shelf, taking stuff, putting it back in the boxes. It was so menial and boring and um, I hated it. I was 18 years old, 17, 18. I left high school at 17. And um, I was making a dollar sixty-five an hour an hour to put into perspective. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that because the job before that, I was working at the local pharmacy, stocking shelves and cleaning the floors and the shelves, 65 cents an hour. Wow. So I thought the dollar 65 was yeah, like, yeah, two and a half times more. <laughs> um, but you can imagine what you know, making $25 a week is, is yeah. like. It's like, I was making more money doing the illegal stuff than I was, but I had to have a front. Right. So, well, what's minimum wage at that time? I don't, I have no idea. My so much money. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was, I was just young. Yeah. I was too young, so they didn't want to pay me minimum wage. Right. Um, so that's how it began. And then, you know, as I, as I was getting um, more brave and courageous with my unethical activities, mm 
the consequences started to go up. So now all of a sudden, you know, we're getting caught with some stuff. Now my parents are being called in. Now friends are getting, going to jail. Now one friend died. Um, and the game was getting to be a little bit more serious. And now I'm, I'm an adult. So now, you know, if I get caught doing something illegal, uh, I'm going to jail. I'm, go I'm not going to like a boys detention center anymore. Yeah. That's kind of like how, how it helped. So, you know, and I had a loving, caring family. Um, but they just weren't, they didn't know how to help me. And my father only went to grade five. My mother went to grade three. They didn't have the education. And so they didn't know how to help me. And my brother, who was a tennis pro, was traveling the world. And he's nine years older than I am. And we were always very close. And when he came back from traveling on the pro tennis circuit, uh, he was teaching this one man tennis. And he was telling this man that my younger brother's getting into a lot of trouble. And this guy was uh, apparently very positive and, and a very successful entrepreneur. And my brother was living in Toronto, Canada, which is about 350 miles from Montreal, where, where I was living. And my brother just said to me one day, hey, why don't you come down for the weekend? Um, I want to introduce you to this guy who's very successful in real estate. And he helps a lot of people. He does some speaking and things like that. And I said, sure, I'll come and see you, bro. He said, well, it was okay if, I, if we have lunch with this man. I yeah. said, yeah, I don't care. We have lunch with anyone you're, it was a friend of yours. And so I took the train from Montreal to Toronto. And my brother picked me up at the train station. Uh, I left, I think, at 6 o'clock in the morning, got there at like 11 o'clock. He yeah. picked me up at 11.30. We went to have lunch. And, and at lunch, uh, this guy, who was very, very nice, um, started asking me a whole bunch of questions about you know, my life, why I was doing what I was doing. Did I know the consequences that could happen as of my actions. And of course, yeah, I know, I know. I've heard, I was like, I've heard all this before. So I keep asking away. It's like, you know. And then he said to me, he said, listen, um, would you like to do something, you know, nice with your life? Would you like to stop doing what you're doing and make enough money, you know, doing something else? Well, yeah, of course I would. And he said, um, what are your goals? I'd like to get a better job. Yeah. So I don't want to make $1.65 an hour anymore. Um, I'd like to buy a car because I'm really tired of taking the bus you know, to work every day, especially in the winter in Montreal. And I'd really love to move out of my parents' house. You know, I'm like 19 now yeah. and I'm still living under their roof, their rules. And they're not happy with, you know, with the choices I'm making. So he says, great. So what are your, some of your bigger goals and dreams? I said, is, is there more than that? And um, he said, yeah, like, you know, do you want to live in Montreal? What kind of car do you want? What kind of home do you want? Do you, do you want to travel? Do you, like, what do you want to do? I said, well, I don't know. He said, do me a favor. He said, take um, a couple of moments and um, fill out the answers to this question, this, these questions. And, um, and the first question on this document, which I sat at the table next to us, my brother and he kept talking, was, um, at what age do you want to retire? I was 19. And so I looked at this guy, Mr. Bass, excuse me, sir. I said, huh, what am I supposed to put down here? Like my father d doesn't retire. We don't know anybody who's retired. Like what, what are you supposed to put as the answer? He says, pick a number. Mm. So I'm 19. I said, I said like, is 45 okay? He goes, put it down. Mm. So I wrote down retired age 45. Mm. I had no idea what it meant. Second question, upon retirement, how much net worth would you like to have? So I'm looking at it. I'm like scratching my head yeah. and I'm going, excuse me, sir, what does net worth mean? <laughs> and he explained to me, he says, net worth is how much 
you have after you pay off all the debt that is owed, let's say on your house or car or anything like that. And I go, what's a good number? <laughs> he said, most people you know, would like to retire with, you know, millions of dollars. I said, is three million enough? And he goes, yeah, it's more than enough. This was, this was 1980. So you weren't even born. Right. So I wrote down <laughs> three million. And then asked a whole bunch of questions. What kind of home would you like? What kind of car would you like? Who would you like to um, uh, help? Uh, where would you like to travel? What and I just said, you know, a four-bedroom house, Mercedes-Benz. Um, I want to help my parents retire. I want to travel the world. I want an Italian wardrobe. I want to travel first class. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. I looked at it and I go, this is a bunch of bullshit. Here you go, sir. <laughs> I gave him the document. And he reads all the stuff. And um, he says, where'd you get these ideas and some of the stuff you want. Well, I said, I watched this show on TV called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yeah. So I might as well put some stuff yeah. and tell me to use my imagination. And so uh, anyway, he, he reads, he says, you know, way to go on creating a vision. Mm. And he said, you know, most people don't understand this, but you always create a vision first, a vision of what you want. And then you come up with, how am I going to achieve it? Yeah. He said, I'm going to ask you one question. And the answer to this one question will determine, he holds up the paper, whether you achieve every one of these things. And I said, one, I'm thinking in my head, one question, like one question is going to determine whether I achieve all of that? And um, he goes, um, I said, sure, I mean, ask me the question. And he le I remember him leaning in a little bit. He says, are you interested in achieving this stuff or are you committed to achieving it? I had like a scratch your head moment. I was like, my interest in like a minute. I said to him, I said, I kept calling him, sir, yeah. sir, yeah. Uh, what's the difference? Uh -huh. And he says to me, looks me square in the eye, leans in and he says, if you're interested, you'll do what's easy and convenient. Yeah. If you're interested, you'll keep using your stories and excuses and reasons why you can't. You know that story you told me about leaving high school at grade 11 being voted most likely to fail and, and failing English and failing math and, and all the rest of your story of why you're doing the things you're doing right now? It says, you'll have to let that go. It says, if you're interested, okay, you'll come up with every reason in the book why you can't do it or it can't be done. It says, but if you are committed, you will upgrade, and I'll never forget this, you'll upgrade your identity to match this new destiny. So I remember like, oh God, I didn't even know what identity meant really, but I kind of did. He says, you'll upgrade your beliefs so that you believe you can achieve it. You'll upgrade your self-worth so you feel you deserve it. You'll upgrade your knowledge. You'll upgrade your skills. You'll develop the habits that are required to achieve this and more. So he explains it to me, and then he leans in again. Oh. Yeah. So, young man, are you interested, or are you committed? My brother's jaws like yeah, yeah. drop yeah. listening to this because my brother's thinking about, oh my God, this makes so much sense, yeah. and I don't know why. Well, um, I was a little scared, yeah. but I also was afraid of saying I was interested, mm. right? Because I knew it wasn't the right answer, right? So I just said, well, well, sir, I'm committed. And he reaches out his hand and he says, in that case, I will be your mentor. I'm like, wow, uh, thank you, sir. 
what's a mentor? (laughs) And then he explained to me, here's what a mentor does. It's somebody who guides you, shares with you what to do, what not to do and why, shares with you how to find the solution to what you're looking for, shares with you how to plan properly, shares with you a path, a blueprint. But I said, yes, I'm committed. He said, then I'll coach you. And, and then he said to me, great, now the first thing I want you to do is um, I need to move here from Montreal to Toronto. Well, what, what do you mean do you want me to move here? I, I, I live in Montreal. Uh, I, don't, I don't have anywhere to live here. I don't have any money. I, I don't, uh, what do you mean move here? He said, well, I can't mentor you from Montreal to here. Right. He said, I'm not coming to Montreal. Yeah. And, and, and we didn't have internet back in those yeah. days. We didn't have FaceTime. Right. We didn't have the yeah. technologies like telephone, you know, <laughs> right? Um, you know, or in person. And so I said, well, I, I don't have the money. I don't know have a place to live. I don't have, he said, stop. He says, look how fast you're giving me an excuse. And I go, but it's true. He says, I know. Remember what I said to you before? He said, first you make the decision. Then you figure out how. Mm. I said, uh, uh, okay. Okay. So he says, great. Second thing I need you to do. I said, what? He says, um, since I'm in real estate and I have seven real estate offices, um, I need you to enroll in real estate school. Um, and there's one starting on, this was on, there's one starting on May the 20th. It was, this was April of 1980. This how I remember these dates so well, and I'll tell you why afterwards. So he says, there's a, there's a class that starts on April the 20th. It's for five weeks, nine to five every day. It's at Humber College, um, and uh, I need you to go to school. And, 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 and go. I said, school? If you want me to go to school? Hold on a second. I'm like, I, I, I don't do well in school. I mean, they kick me out all the time. Uh, I'm not a very good student. I failed English. He said, stop. There you go yeah. again. I said, what do you mean there I go again? This is all true. <laughs> he says, I, it doesn't matter if it's true. You cannot allow your past conditioning, your past experiences, your past failures to control your present thinking. I said, Mr. Brown, I can't go to school. You know, like I just, and like I need to, what do I need to learn? He said, well, you obviously need to learn real estate, real estate law. I said, real estate law? <laughs> Law, I couldn't make it out of English, let alone real estate law. And I kept doing this for literally 20, 30 minutes. And then he tells me it's $500 that I need for the class. After I said yes, oh <laughs> he says there's $500 you need to pay. $500, I have, I have $35 in the bank or 50 bucks in the bank. He says, well, you're going to have to figure out how to get the rest. I said, well, can you lend it to me? He says, no, I'm not in the finance business. I said, once you start working for me, I'll consider it, but not. To get you started, you have to show me that you're willing to do whatever it takes. Right. You have to show me commitment. Yeah. I moved to Toronto. I borrowed the money from my brother, my mother, my sister, and my father. I made up the difference. My brother let me stay with him on the sofa. Mm-hmm. I went to school every day starting May 20th, 1980. I'm sorry, yeah, May 20th, 1980. Five weeks later, mm-hmm. I passed the test. Mr. Brown guided me on how to study. Other people in the office helped me that worked for him. But the reason I know the dates so well, it was the first time I had passed the test in years that I didn't cheat on in school. To get out of grade 11, I cheated on the final exam and a friend of mine wrote the 50 multiple choice answers on a piece of paper to get me out of grade 11. 
passing on my own was, oh my God, the first glimpse, maybe I'm not dumb. Maybe, maybe I can do this. That was the first shining light, you know, that I wasn't dumb. I knew I was bold to move because I was bold to do what I did before. So I had a little courage and boldness. So now he opened the window up for me of maybe I'm not stupid. Like I was told, like I believed, like I got beaten the shit out of me by my father for having F's and F's and F's and F's reinforcing how bad and how dumb I was. Great story. My question is, at that age, you're so young. Uh, why did you decide to listen to this man, especially you know, on the very first time yeah. that you met him? You knew nothing about him. What was it about him that allowed you to listen? About a week before, I was at the airport. And I get to the counter at the airport, and I'm with my business partner and his girlfriend in our illegal business. Mm. And uh, we're at the counter about to check in and a guy in front of me, the guy's name supposedly was Denis, is somebody that we were doing business with, mm. with drugs. The girlfriend of my business partner says, I saw him at the police station last week. And so I tapped him on the shoulder, I said, Denis, and he wouldn't respond to me, even though we had done business together. Right. He wouldn't respond because he was with somebody also, I think maybe his wife or somebody. And at that moment, I realized, holy mackerel, and something that my father said when I was a kid that didn't make any sense until that moment. He said, even the best juggler in the world will drop what they're juggling once in a while. And at that moment, I realized, I am on the cusp of getting caught. Interesting. And I haven't shared that story, I don't think, anywhere, because nobody's like, you know, taking the dive deeper. But fear of getting caught and going to jail was like, holy, ma I have to stop this. Right. So fear was a great motivator. And then the other side of it was, here's this guy, seemed loving, caring, kind, successful, humble, that's willing to mentor me, I was like, the perfect time to say yes. Yeah. And, um, and so I moved, you know, literally I moved within weeks, yeah. quit my job, told my parents I moved within weeks. Yeah. And uh, that was May 20th, 1980. I became a, a real estate agent. And between May 20th, 1980 and December 31st, 1980, I got on the phones all day, every day. He taught me a script. Hi, this is John Asraf with Alan Brown Real Estate Company. We're here. We have somebody who's looking to buy a home in the neighborhood. And I learned this script. I learned the objections. I learned what to say if they said this. And I made $31,000, my share, because of the leads I was able to get and the listings we were able to get or the buyers we were able to find. $31,000. My father, I remember, made twenty-five grand that year. I made 31000 in six months. Oh, my God. So... Holy yeah. mackerel, I bought a car. I moved out of my brother's house. Uh, I bought furniture, bought my first stereo. I remember I remember right now being in the store, buying my stereo with the money I had earned. Yeah. I bought a couple suits yeah. um, and I started to feel better. And then mm -hmm. Mr. Brown kept upgrading my mindset, upgrading my, my skills. Yeah. And the second year, 1981, mm -hmm. 
I made $150,000. And then I took, I worked, I worked another half a year. Um, I made um, another whack of money over the next six months. And then I traveled the world for 15 months, which is a story I was sharing with you <laughs> in the living room. And my life changed. Mm. And I've never looked back. Did you want, did you have that goal of traveling the world? No. How did you decide to shift? Uh, you know, at that point, right, you're making the most money. Even most money I've ever made. I was making five times, six times more money than my father was making at the time. Yeah. More money than most people make. Yeah. Um, and I just said, I want to go see the world. I just, something within me just said, like, I just, I don't know. It was just a spark of inspiration. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm going to go travel the world. I had this money in the bank. Um, and I said, I'm going to go make money. I'm going to go travel the world and, and get this experience. And I, I didn't know how long it was going to go for, mm. but I was, you know, 22 years old. I left in September of 1982. I came back November of 1983. And then I got right back into real estate, owing my sister $17,000 because she, she lent me money to finish my trip. Right. And I didn't work uh, at all. Mm -hmm. um, I just went from, you know, from country to country that I wanted to and stayed as long as I wanted to. And I stayed, you know, $25, $35 a night places yeah. or hostels in some places, people's homes in other places. Yeah. And it was, again, one of the single best decisions of my life. And I've never stopped traveling. No, I, I love that. And I resonate very yeah. strongly to that. Um, I, I was working in finance and was offered a six-figure job when I was coming out of university at McGill. And I had to make the decision to say, like, is this what I really want to do? Because it was never something I wanted to do. I was just pressured into doing it by my school, my peers, yeah. society. And I knew I wanted to travel and I knew I wanted to start a business that was more meaningful. That decision to, you know, not prioritize money, but rather prioritize other things like experiences, life, health, whatever, you know, that was very hard for a lot of people to do. And it was hard for me to do. Sure. My question to you is what, how do you get to that point where you're probably at the most confident that you will have been, you're making the most money. I feel at that point, at that point, money might take some form of importance or priority. How do you decide to let that go and yeah. take that trip? I remember one of my early from a distance mentors was Bob Proctor. I met him because he lived in Toronto and I went to training events for motivation and, and stuff. And I remember one day, you know, he said, are you trading your life for what you love? And he gave a lot of examples of people that maybe, maybe were lawyers or doctors or engineers or professionals or, or took jobs because that's what parents told them to do. That's what society told them to do, but it wasn't what they loved. And he said, first you choose the lifestyle that you want to live. And then you figure out how to achieve that lifestyle. Once I knew that I could make money mm -hmm. because I was upgrading my, my entrepreneur skills, my sales skills, my, I had to learn marketing and, and my business skills. Mm -hmm. I never felt insecure. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that if I knew how to make money, I'd always know how to make money. I wasn't afraid at all. And, but I also learned about the conscious and the subconscious mind and, the, and conditioning and paradigms and, 
and social norms. And I learned, you know, I learned the, the power of your environment around, you know, around your decisions and the pressure that, that you have from parents who want you to do well, parents who want you to have security. Um, well, that was all shattered, you know, uh, over the last 20, 30 years of it. Companies don't give you security. And I was taught, like literally at, starting at 19, there's only one place security comes from, and that's within. That's you. So I worked more on my inner skills, what I call are my neuro muscles, than I did. I worked hard on my external muscles also. So I was like, um, I, I, I knew that, that behavior, what I do or don't do, um, causes results. So I always looked for what are the things I need to do? Yep. What do I need to learn? What do I need to do? What do I need to say? What do I need to stop saying? How do I communicate better? How do I understand in what I did back then was selling? Mm -hmm. uh, how do I understand selling better? Mm -hmm. How do I understand helping people? Yeah. How do I understand that? And I became very self-aware and very self-confident mm -hmm. that I could go and spend all the money because I knew where the money came from. Right. So how you could make it back. Yeah. And, and I felt even back then a little cockier than maybe I should have been, but, but I had this attitude of, I can do this. Yeah. Now I, now I learned how to think. I learned how to challenge my emotions and I learned how to take the right actions in the right order at the right time. I learned the algorithm. Right. And once you know the algorithm, mm -hmm. you can't unknow it. You could take away any, anything and everything that I have now, uh, and I don't just mean financially, but you could you know, take anything away and I would have a framework to build it back, at least a framework that is repeatable and predictable. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the beautiful thing about you know, the era that we're living in now, how to, fill in the blank, how to build a podcast to make it successful. Mm -hmm. We know how. How to be a really good interviewer. We know how. How to put a, um, a robot on Mars. We know how. Uh, how to land, you know, a rocket on the moon and bring them back safely. You know, we know how. Yeah. Um, how to, we, health, wealth, relationship, career, business, fine. We know so much of the how. So, and especially now the internet. Now AI is like, oh my God. At our fingertips, we have more of the how than we've ever had in our lives. And so I, I knew that I had some skill sets that were um, lifelong tools I could use. And, but that's the path that my mentor put me on. Right. He yeah. put me on a path of inner confidence, right. self-confidence, self-worth, self-esteem. He put me on a path of... of having the right beliefs. You put me on the path of upgrading my skills and getting better and better and better every day a little bit. Yeah. You put me on the path, you know, to uh, understanding how to develop strategies, like how am I going to achieve this goal? You want to lose 25 pounds of fat? Yeah. Great. You want to have it surgically removed or are you going to exercise, diet, and sleep well? Like, which one? You're going to balance your hormones? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I learned that for every goal, there's a way of thinking there's emotions that move you towards it, emotions that move you away from it. And then there are things that you need to do. Yeah. And I'd love to get into those strategies yeah. and frameworks. Sure. Before that, I'm just curious on your opinion. 
So one thing that a lot of people that l listen to my, my work have in common is we're all looking for something more. And I mean, when I think about my life and people who are similar to me, there's a lot of, and actually this is a, the biggest reason why I started what I do now is because when I said no to my job, my finance job, I reflected back on why I was able to say no to that. And I had tons and tons of friends who were offered the same position, but, and they hated the job as much as me, but they said yes. They chose to be unhappy for a multitude of reasons, respect, uh, safety, comfort. Um, why do you think most people work in jobs that they hate or to make it more general, why do you think people choose to lead lives that they know they won't enjoy? So it's, it's multifaceted. So number one, beliefs drive behavior. So they have an underlying belief that if I take this job, it will give me this, 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 that, and it'll prevent this, this, and this. So that's part one. Um, part two is we are neurologically and biologically wired for safety and comfort. So, you know, we want shelter. We want, we want a home. We want a roof over our heads. We want, we want a bed. We want food. We want, you know, lights to turn on. We want water. We, we want that. Those are like basic needs, right? And so when people take a job that maybe they don't love or they, um, they accept a relationship they're not totally happy in, is they're meeting somehow some of their basic needs, which is biologically wired into them. And the other part that's, we're, that's wired into our brain is to move away very, very fast from what we don't want. Mm -hmm. So this desire for what I need, yeah. food, shelter, safety, security, mm -hmm. uh, and my uh, moving away from neurochemistry of, well, you know, I don't want to be broke. I don't want to yeah. be, you know, to, to not have this stuff. I don't want, I don't want yeah. to be respected. Those two entities pull and push on each other. And most people don't yet have the self-confidence, okay, that they can have all of that stuff anyway. So they trade their life for what they perceive is safety and security only to find themselves in a prison where the door is unlocked, but they can't get out. Your beliefs shape your reality, right? Uh, what are the types of things that we tell ourselves that might be negative or limiting? What are the types of things that we can say that might be uplifting? So before I answer that question, the first thing that I think is worth getting into is, were you born with any beliefs? Were you born with um, self-image or how much you're worth or, you know, self-esteem? No. Were you born with any fear? Were you born with any knowledge or skills? No. So when we talk about what are some of the things we say to ourselves, yeah. well, first and foremost, we say to ourselves the things that we have learned yeah. to say to ourselves. Yeah. And we have learned them either from television, mm -hmm. radio, our friends, yeah. our teachers, our parents, or our brothers and sisters, yeah. you know. So the environment shapes our early belief system. From a pure neuroscience perspective, what is a belief? 
And if we dive just a little bit beneath the surface, and I hope that people who are watching or listening don't don't um, check out, because this is really important to understand, is we know that the human brain is made up of about 85 billion cells. Yeah. You know, when those cells get activated, the neurons, cells, you know, fire, okay, um, they create connections. So the neurons that fire, wire, right? So let's say I heard when I was a kid, you're not really that smart. This isn't for you. You're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not smart enough. You're too young. You're too old. You're too white. You're too black. You're too from the Middle East. You're too from here. Whatever it is that we're told. When we're very young, we don't have the ability to say, well, why do you say that? What gives you the evidence? To you can't have a, um, a cognitively stimulating conversation at a certain stage of your development. And you don't know that you can question. And so you believe. Oh, Mommy says this, daddy says this, my brother says this, my sister, you know, got angry at me about that. My teacher said that my report card, you know, means this. So we develop these beliefs based on society norms, based on expectations, based on our parents' upbringing. And I can't tell you how many things my mother and father used to say that when I look at it back, I, I go back, what the F? Like... What, how did you believe in that? Right. Well, um, we believe things in religion that aren't true. We believe things about friends or people that aren't true. We believe things about this political party or that political party or that ethnicity or that ethnicity because we've been passed those ideas down. So the challenge with that is we, our beliefs create the lens by which we perceive the world and we believe it's perceiving us. And our brain has got this innate ability to make sure that our outside world that we see matches the internal map of our reality of which beliefs are a part of them. So we actually don't see the world as it is. We actually are projecting the world as we believe it to be. I mean, think about that for a moment. What do you mean I'm projecting the world? Well, if you don't believe you're deserving of making two or three times more money, even if the opportunity is there, you won't seize it because you don't feel you deserve it. So you'll discount it or distort it. If you don't believe you're smart enough, good enough, worthy enough, if you believe that, you know, bad things always happen to you, or you wonder, why do I get bullied no matter where I go? Well, that's because that's the expectation you either knowingly or secretly have. Mm -hmm. It's a rough one for a lot of people to really understand. So, you know, when we have disempowering, negative, destructive beliefs, they tear us down. Constructive, empowering, positive beliefs lift us up and build us up. So if the beliefs you hold, for the most part, weren't the ones you chose, you accepted them, probably unknowingly, so it's not your fault, how did you believe what you believed? Well, somebody maybe told you, so they used words. Well, could I use words to tell myself something that I don't believe right now that I want to? Yeah, that's called an affirmation, affirming in my mind a new, empowering, constructive, positive language pattern. Yeah. 
well, um, how do I do those? I said, well, you can uh, yeah. go on to ChatGPT and see if it'll write out 100 for you on the things you want to believe. Um, go to Google. Just use Google. Go to Claude. Go, go to any, any of your search engines and say, I want 25 affirmations for health and 25 for wealth and 25 for my relationship and 25 for my self-esteem. And then you know what? Uh, writing it down or getting it, it's like one part of the equation. Uh, but that would be like if you want to become a better actor or actress, um, you can either write your own screenplay or get one from somebody who's written one. But once they've written it, then how would you become that role? Yeah. How would you, if I said to you, I'll give you a million dollars to learn this five-page script, to be an actor. There's a little role in a movie. Yeah. And I gave it to you. I'm going to give you a million bucks. Mm -hmm. And for everybody who's listening or watching, play this along with me. I gave you a million dollars to become this role. What would you do? You have to film in six months. I would find as many similar, comparable scripts, actors, people who have done it before, yeah. who have achieved it and been successful at it. I would study them. Okay. Try to compile as much information as I can from all of those different people, like their habits, their routines, what they do best at the beginning, the middle, the end, how they speak etc uh, and i would create my own framework for what i believe is a successful way to study and perform this art all right so you do a little research first so you'd have a ritual or a performance schedule and do you think you might read that script a few times thousands of times. oh thousands of times. <laughs> do you think you might record yourself reading the script thousands of times. do you think you might take the script in your hand and turn on a camera and read the script while the camera's on so you can see yourself. Definitely. And then once you did that thousands of times, let's say it's hundreds of times first, there's going to come a point where you don't need the script anymore, just like you don't need to read a song a hundred times to know the song, because you start to get it. So then you could practice without the script. Mm -hmm. And from a neurological perspective, based on what I shared just earlier, mm -hmm. wouldn't that mean that every time I researched and read the script, and, and practiced it, I would be firing brain cells and I'd be wiring brain cells. Mm -hmm. And through repetition, it would go from conscious effort, like conscious effort learning how to eat or tying your shoes or putting on clothes. Right. I would develop a pattern that went from conscious effort pattern mm -hmm. to a subconscious automatic pattern based on something called automaticity. Mm -hmm. Oh, so I could take a script that's not real now and I could read it, feel it, act it, become it mm -hmm. so that the new identity and character associated with it would then drive the perceptions, mm -hmm. the emotions and the behaviors where at first it was effort more. Mm -hmm. Doesn't spaced repetition create effort less? Yeah. Ooh, I think maybe I would start with that. So like we, so like you said with, with the script, we can apply that concept to how we think of ourselves. Everything. How you think of yourself. Our brain has these um, circuits that turn on or off. Our brain has some yeah. networks that work you know, together or, or, uh, or separately. Self-image is a reinforced neural pattern. The income you earn that you've got comfortable earning yeah. 
is a comfort zone neural pattern. The weight mm. that you are at right now is just an effect yeah. of your internal self-image and some of these patterns that have been conditioned. And since every brain functionally works the same, mm -hmm. like every gas-powered car works the same, like every electrical, you know, uh, powered car works the same, like every bike works the same functionally, mm -hmm. you know, bike, trike. If every brain works the same, then me learning how to train my own brain is a skill that will be worth learning, right? I've been doing it for 43 years. I call it inner sizing. Yeah. Can you explain just in one sentence what an inner size is? Sure. Um, an inner size is any uh, mental or emotional or physical technique, okay, or behavior that strengthens your mind. So just like you can do a variety of different exercises to strengthen your muscles, we can do a host of different inner sizes to strengthen our self-image, our self-worth, our self-esteem, our beliefs, um, our awareness, our focus, our concentration. Mm -hmm. So I look at all of these little parts of, uh, of uh, you know, our psyche as muscles. Some are weak, some are strong, some help us achieve our goals, some don't. What if we said we have, uh, everybody has habits, right? Yeah. Well, does everybody have weak habits and strong habits? you know, good habits and maybe bad habits. Well, what if we just looked at them as, oh, I guess I have a pattern that's reinforced in my brain that maybe it's a bad habit, a bad pattern, yeah. or a disempowering pattern. Yeah. What if I could deactivate it mm -hmm. and activate, turn on, and reinforce a new one that's opposite of that? Yeah. Could I do it? Yeah. Of course. What What is an inner size that all of us could practice? Yeah. So the, the first inner size that I, that I share with everybody um, is based on the fact that, you know, I think we all know we, we have this brain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the brain's got a nervous system. So from the base, of the, uh, base of the skull, we have a vagus nerve. Not Las Vegas, but Vegas, V-A-G-U-S, vagus nerve. And part of that nervous system, right, that goes from the back of the, your skull, the back of your head, all the way down your spine and then across your extremities to your bottom of your legs is the nervous system. There's, there are two parallel um, systems, and one is called the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is one of our systems. We have about 11 core systems in the body, but one of our core systems is the nervous system. And so let's say, you know, we're walking down the street and we're talking with our friend or maybe we're looking at our phone and all of a sudden we hear you know, tires spinning and we're about to walk off of the uh, curb onto the street and we jump back, okay, onto the curb and we see a car just swoosh, swooshes by. Well, we know that it's because of this parasymp, I'm sorry, the sympathetic nervous system that heard the sound at the speed of sound that traveled into our ear canal, activated a part of the brain called the thalamus that caused us to move back because of the fight, flight, or freeze automatic system that's been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years. Oh, wow, that's a good system to have. Wow, an early detection mechanism. I have one of those? Yeah, that's what that's for. So sometimes we need to fight something to, for survival or safety. Sometimes we need to freeze. You see, I ever see animals on one of the animal channels? Yeah. You know, some of them just freeze. Yeah. 
and the, they're they're the yeah yeah you know they freeze and you know the thing the predator thinks it's dead so it leaves it alone so we can freeze um, and all of that's doing is for protection. So fight, flight, freeze are three of the core ways that this system works. Now it gets activated, and this is where most people have a lot of ignorance around. It gets activated anytime there's real or imagined danger or discomfort. Give an example. You want to speak in public and speaking in public is going to round you off and round off your skills and maybe you can get paid, maybe you can get a promotion. But inside your mind, somewhere, somehow, maybe when you were five or six or seven or eight or ten years old, you stood up in class to give an answer. You got the wrong answer and all your friends went, ha, 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 you're so dumb. Oh my God, you couldn't get the answer to that simple question. Like Mary knows the answer to that question and you have just been minimized at a young age, and now your brain is just wired, standing up to speak equals pain, mm -hmm. discomfort, being embarrassed, ashamed, ridiculed, mm -hmm. judged, bam, all in one fell swoop, in one question, in one you trying to answer. Mm -hmm. You never get back up again to speak in public. Why? Because your brain is projecting that that might happen again, and who the hell wants to feel like you did then? So it builds this neural networking pattern in seconds that last your whole life. Now, in the example of crossing, you know, walking, get on the street to walk, that's, that's where it saves your life. But our subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between something real or imagined. So any information we have in this subconscious part of our mind can trigger this fight, flight, or freeze. And it will usually show up as rationalizations in our self-talk. We will talk ourselves out of what we need to do because, oh, I don't have the time. I'm too young. I'm too this. I'm too that. Yeah. I'm not enough of this. You know, I, you know, I live here. I live there. I'm this ethnicity or that. Ethnicity. So we'll use the story and the excuse to protect ourselves from the reality that we're not even aware of. Right. So we do more to avoid pain or discomfort. So, How you know, you flip that? well, so first we, we want to flip to the other system, right? And that's the para sympathetic nervous system. That's our calm to respond system. The sympathetic is automatic, reactive. Mm. The parasympathetic is deliberate, okay, and responsive. That's a skill. So just to put into perspective, they teach Navy SEALs underwater how to stay calm so they can respond when enemy are attacking them underwater. They teach astronauts when they're out on the spacewalk how to stay calm in case fluid gets into their eyes. They teach firefighters how to do this going into a burning building. They teach police officers, okay, in hostage situations, how to stay calm so that they can actually use the thinking part of their brain versus the reactive part of their brain. And the first thing everybody learns, first thing is using the breath. So let's say that you have doubts, fears, anxieties, worries, stress. If you just took six slow, deep breaths in through your nose, breathing into the diaphragm to expand the diaphragm, sends a signal to the brain that there's no danger. And then if we increase the air into the lungs, brain says, oh, no danger. And if we just do it slowly, the brain says, oh, you're breathing slowly, there's no danger. When there's danger, how do we tend to breathe? Shallow, fast, yeah. right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And we're heightened state of awareness. Mm -hmm. Well, we're actually turning that system off 
and deliberately turning on the other system. When one part of our system is on, the other one shuts off. So either we're fighting a flight, okay, or we're in calm to respond. Now we can actually teach ourselves how to be in both uh, and use that uh, neurochemistry for fuel. So the first thing we do is breathe in slowly in through our nose and breathe out even more slowly out through our mouth. And I like to suggest that people breathe out like they're breathing out through a straw just to pay all of the attention on the lips and the breath. So you just like, And I like to hold at the top and hold at the bottom for one or two or three seconds because I'm telling my brain, you're okay. You don't need more air or oxygen. So I'm deliberately learning how to be aware of the um, stress, anxiety, worry, doubt, or fear. And then I'm switching over to the part of my brain that I can actually think with. And then once I'm in a calm state, I go, okay, this thing that you want to do, um, is it really going to hurt you? Is it re will it make you feel uncomfortable? Okay, yeah. But what's the reward if you do? Well, the reward if I do is this and this and this and this and this and this and this. What's the downside, okay, of doing it? Well, you know, maybe I'll, uh, you know, I'll mess up my words. Well, what can I do to not mess up my words? Well, I could practice. Um, I could have a PowerPoint. I could have a cheat sheet. Um, I, I could get better at it. And am I willing to accept what I need to do to get better at to mitigate the risk? And am I willing to challenge myself to get better so that I don't keep stuck, get stuck here? So now I'm back at choice. So now I can have awareness. I can have a new intention. I can say, here's what I want to do. I say, okay, just to move forward instead of backward, what's one little thing that I can do? Mm. And you would apply this at any moment when you, oh, anytime there's any Anytime. Yeah. Anytime. Like why, like if you think about why do I procrastinate? Yeah. I want to achieve the thing that doing the thing helps me achieve. Why would you ever procrastinate? There's some mechanism that's causing you to procrastinate. And there's only three reasons people procrastinate. Okay. Well, can I upgrade my self-image? Yep. Can I change my beliefs? Yep. Can I manage my fears? Yep. Mm. So now I'm going to stop procrastinating because I'm going to deal with the cause of procrastination, self-sabotage, same thing. Most self-sabotage is around uh, fear, living beliefs, self-image related, you know, because I don't believe secretly I'm worthy of that or that I deserve that. So all of the behaviors have an effect, mm -hmm. but all of the effects have a cause. I like to focus on the cause of the stuff. So I could, let me get better at that. Yeah. If you're, if you listen, if you're a football player, and you're a, you're a quarterback or a receiver, mm -hmm. or you're a baseball player, you're a pitcher, a catcher, or a batter. If you pitch and the pitch doesn't get to where you want to, that's the effect. Mm -hmm. You don't get mad at the effect. You say, like, did I hold my finger wrong? Was my motion wrong? Was the process wrong? If you're a catcher and you're a catcher over here with the ball's coming over here mm -hmm. and it keeps hitting in the head, okay, so you know, I better move my fucking glove over. You know, um, if you're, if you're a quarterback and you keep missing the mark, mm -hmm. you know, by, by a foot, there's something has to switch. If you're a hockey player, it doesn't matter, yeah. you know, the end result, the goal, the touchdown, the, the, the hit, the catch, the pitch, mm -hmm. um, that's what we do. Okay. Or that's, you know, you know, that's the stuff we do. But if we want the result, we have to adjust the mechanisms by which we achieve the results. No different again, an archer. 
the bone arrow is the same, right? They, they pull back, you know, and then they, they release and they usually will breathe out before they release. Yeah. You know, so there's a process to all of it. Most people are not prepared to A, learn the process, but then B, practice. And, you know, there's a wonderful quote that uh, I found a few years ago from uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Sarah Mackay. She goes, amateurs practice until they get it right once or twice. Pros practice until they can't get it wrong. That's powerful. Yeah. So you have to be prepared to do the work, the residual work, yeah. to create and reinforce the empowering constructive pattern. And contrary to popular belief, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. And we know that practicing one time on the Rubik's Cube, mm -hmm. you don't become a champion that way. Yeah. Uh, reading a book one time, yeah. um, you know it. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, you, you missed 98% of the book yeah. the first time. You know it when you read it again. Mm -hmm. And they say, let me take this and let me go and apply it. And the visceral experience, that's actually what's called learning. Mm. The intellectualizing is like mental masturbation. Okay. <laughs> Thinking that I know this, right. you don't know shit yeah. until you do it and then you experience it. And, um, and then if you don't do it, um, why aren't you doing it? Well, I'm, I'm lazy. No, you're not. You're just not committed. You're just not committed. I love everything that you said. So powerful. Can you put that into a, a framework? So I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this chart sure. as the interviewer part as, you know, definitely taking what you're saying into, into yeah. consideration. Suppose I'm at a stage, I, I can paint you an avatar if you'd like to make it more precise. Let's say I'm 25. I'm in a job that I don't like. There are things in my life that I'm not happy about for multiple reasons, uh, but I have control over them. Like I can choose to be happy. I can choose to be unhappy. So it's not, it's yeah. not a dead end. Situation. You're not a victim. Right. How do I go about changing that? What is a framework I can abide by? And you've touched on all of those things. Yeah, I'll put it all together for how you. How can we put it together? We're sitting here at my home in San Diego. The ocean is right over there. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're facing West right now, right? Cause the sunsets right there every day. If I said to you, um, where would you like to go? Like, I'm going to get on my yacht down there and we're going to go and we can go for weeks on my yacht. Mm -hmm. Where would you like to go? Hawaii over there. So, Hawaii. So, so let's say we said Hawaii, the Hawaiian islands. We know there's lots of them. Mm -hmm. Which islands specifically? Let's start at Maui. Maui. Okay, so we're going to get onto the boat. We're going to say to ourselves, okay, how many nautical miles is it? How much fuel do we need? How much food do we need? How long should it take us given the, you know, the current circumstances of the ocean and weather patterns? And we can start to say, okay, Maui, mm -hmm. two weeks from now, we will arrive in Maui. We're going to have all these provisions on the board. We're going to take these people and all this stuff. But we're going to set the vision for you and I sitting on the beach in Maui two weeks from now with a yummy, delicious pina colada 
and some sushi, like, oh, mamma mia, it's going to be so good. Maybe a glass of vino or champagne to celebrate. And we're going to be on that beach, and you and I are going to be high-fiving, and our girlfriends or wife, you know, in your case, your girlfriend and my wife are going to be like, oh, my God, you guys got us to Hawaii, and that trip was amazing. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the first thing we have to do is create the vision. Yeah, I've already pictured it. Right, so picture the vision and really feel it. Why? Well, um, our brain works really, really well with clarity and vision. Mm-hmm. Now, some people say, but I don't know how to achieve it. It's, it's not time for that yet. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to achieve the vision okay. when you set the vision. And then if I said to you, okay, um, so we have a vision that we're going to sit in Hawaii two weeks from now, and we're going to celebrate and party. That's the vision. So we're going to get there, and I said to you, okay, so what are some goals for um, the next 24 hours? Well, the next 24 hours, we need to like uh, charter a boat. Mm-hmm. We need to hire a captain. We need to, you know, these are all the things that we, we have in the next 24 hours. Right. Uh, and then we need to, oh, how are we going to pay for it? Oh, we need to yeah. find how much money is going to cost us to fuel it, to feed it and all that. So we need to set, here's all the stuff that I need. And now we're going to set some goals. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then we're going to have this done by this date and that done by that date and that done by that date. Uh, and then on the last day, we need to do this before we leave. So I don't need to do everything right now. I just need to know. What do I need to do right now to prep me for getting over there? So I'm going to make a list of all the things that I might need. What knowledge do I need? What skills do I need? What tools do I need? What resource do I need? Whose help do I need? Um, How do I develop the plan to go from here to there? So we say, okay, great. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to leave, you know, my dock. We're going to go, you know, to Coronado first. We're going to pick up some provisions in Coronado. That's like phase one. Mm. From Coronado, we're going to head out and we're going to go x number of hundred miles right so we're going to chart a course to reach a certain target by certain dates so now i have vision now i have some goals now i know what i need by whom by when and so now i'm going to ask myself are there any other things are there any things that can get in my way well um yeah well what if and now i'm going to write down all the things that could happen yeah and then I'm going to say, okay, well, if this happens, we could do this, this, and this. Check. Well, what if this happens? Well, we're going to do this, 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 and this. So now I have counter strategies. So now my brain has, you know, the goal, what, mm-hmm. right? Uh, now we know when we're going to achieve it. Now we know how we're going to achieve it. Now we've d- d- decreased our risk. And now we have to, you know, just get on our way. But before we do any of that stuff, my first question to you is going to be, are you committed to being in Hawaii in two weeks? Or are you just interested? Or are you just interested? Because all this stuff that I shared with you shows up in this dirty, 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 dirty four-letter word. It's called work. Man, I love that. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Not many people are willing to die. Mm. You got to put the work in. So we'll make a decision. Make a decision. We'll commit to it. Commit to it. And then we'll set a plan. Set the vision, set the goals. So, so the, and then the, the timelines, mm-hmm. the tools and resources needed, the potential risks and mitigate those and get busy. Get busy. Because yeah. you will have obstacles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know how to get overcome ob- obstacles. We're, we, we wouldn't be the first, yeah. you know, group that goes from here to Hawaii. Right? There's cruise ships that come to San Diego all the time. Mm-hmm. So we already, we actually even know the path. Right. Right. We know when to go, yeah. how to go, 
how long it'll take, where should we, we should be by when. We don't have to think of anything. How much food do we need for four people for, for this trip? We know how much water do we need. We know how much uh, contingency. We know what could go wrong. We already know. You and I don't even have to know any of it. But that's the most powerful thing, though, is that I think most people, when they're in that situation of unhappiness, they think they're alone. They think that what the situation, they think the situation that they're in has never happened to anybody else. And therefore, there are no answers to that. They think they're unique and they're different. And then if they're dealing with, you know, low self-worth or self-esteem, then that keeps them down. Um, if they have disempowering beliefs, beliefs that disempower them, they're not acting from a stage of being empowered. So I would, I would venture to ask people, I said, if you're feeling helpless or hopeless, what would have to happen in order for you to be hopeful? If you're feeling helpless, what would have to happen for you to feel like you have the help that you need? If you're lacking the beliefs, what would have to happen in order for you to believe that it's possible? If you're lacking the strategies, what would have to happen in order for you to get the strategies? If you're lacking the resources, how could you become resourceful? If you're like whatever the lack or limitation is, what's the polar opposite of that? See, and here's maybe we'll end with somewhere around this is whatever we give attention to, okay, energy will flow to where attention goes. So if I'm focusing attention, I'm unhappy, and I give it, yeah. if I give it atten more attention, then I, it expands. Yeah. But if I say, well, let me stop for a moment. Let me take six deep breaths, deactivate that part of my nervous system. Let's say, what would have to happen mm -hmm. for the polar opposite to be true? I've just activated my biocomputer to come up with answers. So the power of my questions really determines the power of where this hundred billion dollar organ, yeah. okay, goes. Mm -hmm. And it really is worth over a hundred billion dollars. And so now, if there was a way, would I want to know it? Mm -hmm. If there was somebody that could help me, would I want to meet them? If there was, okay, uh, a more empowering belief that I could acquire, would I want to learn how to implement? So. So now I learn to ask better questions. Mm -hmm. Now I learn to be aware of stopping the patterns that are keeping me stuck. And now I say, how do I create a more empowering, constructive, build me up mm -hmm. set of self-talk patterns, emotional patterns, yeah. behavioral patterns that create new habits? I ask everybody this. Uh, so please, uh, some people get offended by it, but first one is, how old are you? 62. What does it feel like to be 62? 45. 45? At the mind, the body level, everything? My body is in as good a shape as it's been for my whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm focusing on an eight pack for 62. I had a six pack at 60. Mm -hmm. I can kick my kids in basketball. I yeah. can out bike, uh, out ski, out, out do most people from a health perspective. So I feel phenomenal, mentally sharp, sleep great, eat great, yeah. um, feel phenomenal. Nice. What is one thing that you put a lot of priority on when you were younger and as you got older, you realized it wasn't actually that important? Boom. What other people thought of me? Can you elaborate? As I mentioned, I, was, I used to be very insecure. And so 
I knew I was insecure, therefore I was looking for security in what other people said about me. Mm. And now I feel very secure with who I am and I love who I am and I respect who I am and I want you to like me, but I don't need you to. Mm. Well, that's a good little reframe. Yeah. Uh, what is a big mistake that you made in your life or a big regret that you have that you learned a valuable lesson from? How long do we have? <laughs> Listen, my, my life has been filled with so many mistakes yeah. that were the catalysts to lift me up because I learned how to frame stuff and frame them over time. Um, like I have, I have big mistakes in different areas of my life. Um, you know, I've, I've made mistakes financially that have cost me millions of dollars because of my ignorance. Mm-hmm. I had made a lot of money on a deal and then, um, put all of that money Um, into another uh, several different ventures that I didn't protect myself from and lost 75% of the money it took me 10 years to make in one year. So it was like, oh, God, I regret, you know, I wanted to, you know, multiply, you know, what I had made in a very short period of time, but I had blinders on that were fueled by the money Mm. and didn't protect the downside. Um, and in relationships, uh, you know, I've been married twice before. I've been with my wife, Maria, now we've been together. Tomorrow is actually our 18th anniversary. Right. We've been together for 24 years and it's been magical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, regrets are not, um, not learning about communication, um, in a personal relationship, like I had learned in a business relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it caused a lot of pain and heartache for me and my, you know, former, former life partners, you know, many, many years ago. And so it's, um, yeah, some, some regrets around that. Um, but every one of those things, um, I've taken very, very seriously as a way to reflect mm-hmm. on what I did well, what I didn't do well, what could I learn? Uh, who do I need to apologize for to? Um, and it's given me a chance to just keep growing. So, and I got lots of them. Yeah, I got so many of them. Yeah. My last question. So, well, it's not even a question. It's actually for you to share if you don't mind. So you filled out your, your portion of this daily journal entry. Yeah. I'm curious if you don't mind reading your one piece of life advice and just explaining why that is the piece of advice you gave. Sure. So I wrote down treasure every second. And the reason I chose that, um, is there's a couple of reasons. Number one is only this second, this moment counts. There really isn't the past. There really isn't a future. And so all there is is this second. That's part one of of the question, which is nice and philosophical. Um, I've had a lot of friends in the last several years that have died. My mother died of COVID. My father died of health complications. I have my very good friend who's going through fourth state cancer right now will probably die. Another very close friend just found out she has leukemia two weeks ago. And just over the last several years, um, it's, it's life just seems even more precious as people around me are dying or are getting sick. And so I want to make sure that, I mean, every heartbeat matters, every second counts. So being extremely deliberate about that, 
from the time I wake up till the time I go to bed is just make the second count. Well, I appreciate you adding more seconds yeah. for us. And yeah, my joy. And so. for me, it's a matter of um, did I invest the seconds and moments with you and your audience in a way that you know makes me feel good and my number five highest value in my life is contribution. First value is God. My second is health, spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical, and financial. My third is um, my family. Mm. My fourth is contribution. And fifth is actually fun and experiences. So mm. I got to participate in several of my highest values with you today. So thank you. I appreciate you. Thank appreciate you very you. much.